The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at The Spectator. On this show, I speak to heterodox thinkers on taboo topics, and today, taboo topic is climate change. Uh, so, the apocalypse apparently is nigh, flooding, drought, heat waves, fire, Mother Nature is striking with vengeance. Doomsdayers tell us constantly that we're reaching the point of no return. The UNHCR claims there are 20 million displaced people a year owing to climate change and extreme weather. And Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum, who are meeting this month in Davos in his book, The Great Narrative, tries to build a whole moral and values framework on the shared belief that climate disaster is upon us. Uh, so today I am joined by environmentalist, uh, I should note, sceptical environmentalist, uh, Bjorn Lomborg, founder of the think tank Copenhagen Consensus, who I'm told are trying to set priorities for the world and author of the book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thank you so much for taking the time. It's to great speak. to be here. So in your book, you argue, green pathways proffered by environmentalists, such as the IPCC, will cause three million more deaths a year than the fossil fuel pathway. It will see 26 million more extreme poor every year and will cost a staggering $509 trillion a year, that by, quote, insisting on cutting carbon through climate policies that push up food prices instead of taking a broader view of how to best help people and the planet, we will have consigned 54 million more people to starvation. You're certainly a heterodox thinker, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and I'm keen to get into all of that, but I was wondering if we could just start with some really basic stuff. So I've gone into the IPCC reports and it strikes me, and I think you make this fairly clear in your book, False Alarm, that you do agree with the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN body, you do agree with their assessment that since the end of the pre-industrial period, i.e. 1880, the climate temperature has risen by a mean of 0.85 degrees Celsius and that it's anthropogenic, i.e. man-made. Yes, Yes. Yeah, so fundamentally, I, I think it's actually 1.1 degrees, so even okay. more. But yeah, fundamentally, yes, global warming is real. It is mostly man-made, mm -hmm. uh, possibly all man-made, as you just pointed out. And it is something that we should consider how to fix. So it's not a conversation about, is this man-made? Is this just a conspiracy or anything? But it's much more a conversation like any other conversation we have in politics. How much is this going to be of a problem? And how much are our purported solutions going to cost to fix how much of the issue? And the real point here, I think, is to recognize that when you're inundated, sometimes literally, with all of this information that tells you the end is nigh, it sort of makes you believe, well, we should spend whatever on it. And remember, that's true. If this was a meteor, as one recent movie made it into, if this was a meteor hurtling towards Earth, we should have no other issue. You know, focusing us, if this is going to kill everyone on Earth, obviously this is our biggest and only real thing mm -hmm. that we should be concerned about. It is not. 
And that's not what the UN Climate Panel tells us. It's not what the best economic model tells us. They tell us this is going to be a problem, not the end of the world. Now, if it's a problem, and the way you could compare it is perhaps a little bit like a chronic disease like diabetes, it's certainly something you'd prefer not to have, but it is also something that you can live with and that you should live with. You should take some precautions. You should take your medications. You should change your diet. But you should also recognize this is absolutely livable with. Mm -hmm. So that changes very much the kind of way that you think about climate. So it's a problem, not the end of the world. And we should make smart policies, but not as we're doing right now, an enormous amount of policies that are very costly and actually do very little good. Well, I'm keen to get into those specific policies and your alternative policies. But just if we can stick on basics for one more moment. And it, the doomsdayers that we've both cited, you and them are sort of both drawing from the IPCC reports. And it seems to me that you're choosing different RCPs, which are these models for how we project yeah. uh, the environment crisis or yeah. change rather to unfold. And you're both drawing from the same information, but coming with very different attitudes. So, so what am I not understanding? And then what is the representative concentration pathways? So what that's basically a question of how much emissions are we going to have over the 21st century? Uh -huh. uh, and so the very high numbers, the 8.5 is sort of a world run amok, totally powered by coal fired power plants, sort of five times as much coal as what we're using now. Very unlikely scenario. The 2.6 is a very low scenario where we will basically become all environmentalist in a very short while, also fairly unrealistic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the most realistic outcome is the 4.5. And as you can just hear, most of our listeners probably, I almost glaze over my eyes, right? Because it's a very unhelpful way of, of it's a very technocratic way of defining it. But it matters in the sense that if we're actually going to emit lots and lots of CO2, that will make the problem bigger if we're going to emit almost no CO2. Of course, there's not going to be much of a problem. The honest answer is we'll probably emit somewhere in between, and that's a problem. Again, not the end of the world. So I don't think it's, I mean, I agree that you sort of glaze over when you're reading it, it's kind of tricky. But if you see it as one extreme on one side, one extreme in the other in the middle, but let's say the UN, all these people meeting in Davos, they very much believe in the extreme and they're, and they're preaching the extreme, but you're not. And why have you chosen okay, yes. the specific so RCP that is different from them? So I'm not sure I really choose them all that much and I'll get back okay. to that in just a second. But almost all the evidence now shows that the very high, so the 8.5 RCP, yes, is just not plausible. It's possibly not even doable. Uh -huh. uh, so it is just a scarce scenario. Now, there's a lot of reasons why a lot of modelers use it. If you're going to find out whether something gives you cancer, you'll typically give it to rats. Mm -hmm. And then you give it in huge doses. Because the idea is if we give it a few little doses like most humans have, you almost can't see it. So you need like 100,000 rats to see if there's a slightly more cancer. Whereas if you just stuff them with the stuff, it'll show up in just 10 or 100 rats. And it's a little bit the same kind of thing that you do with the environmental system. So you pump it with the 8.5, then you more easily see the impacts. That makes perfect scientific sense. But what then happens is, you know, it's sort of very obvious that then you come out and say, oh, this is going to rise sea levels enormously. And then the newspapers, of course, come out and say, all right, so there's a study there that says sea levels are going to rise a little bit. And there's a study there that says it's going to rise a huge bit. What are we going to pick? You know, we're obviously going to highlight the one that's most alarmist because it just makes for the best headlines. It doesn't mean it's a good description of what's going to happen. 
Uh-huh. So that's one part of it. But to be quite frank, that's not the main point that I really try to push. So that was my other argument. I'm not really all that engaged in, is it RCP 4.5 or 8.5? It's much more the fact that most of these predictions that you hear almost everywhere in the press do not take into account that humans change their behavior. Mm. So they fundamentally look at climate change, which is absolutely true, and this is because of human action, but they don't take into account that humans change according to that. So take, for instance, sea level rise. When sea levels, if we take a fairly high level estimate, so that would be almost 8.5, that's certainly some of the things I quote, of about a meter of sea level rise over this century, which would be a significant impact. The simple way of looking at that is to say, all right, if nothing else happens, what will happen with a one meter sea level rise? Oh, London is going to be underwater. Lots of other places are going to be underwater. Much of Netherlands are going to be underwater because they didn't update their dikes. That is going to be phenomenally costly. So you can basically make a model that says, if nobody changes their attitude, this is going to flood large parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And so one study that got headlined in the New York Times and Washington Post, many other places, tell you that you will see 187 million people flooded. So they'll have to move, or Rolling Stones even said they'll drown, which of course doesn't happen over 100 years. You'll, you'll actually get out of the water. But also, it'll have huge costs. So somewhere between 55 and $100 trillion per year in cost. Mm-hmm. Now, this is all true if we were stupid enough to not do anything for the next 80 years. Of course, we're not that kind of people. We actually see, all right, sea levels rise, we build higher dikes, we make more infrastructure uh, not vulnerable to sea level rise. We know how to do that. And Holland, again, of course, is a great example of how to do that. If you assume that people act as they have done before, Mm -hmm. and it's important to say this was actually in the models that said the 187 million that got the headlines in New York Post and Washington mm-hmm. Post. They say this is an implausible argument to assume that people won't act. If they act, we estimate instead of seeing 187,000 more people uh, being flooded, we see many, many fewer people being flooded. Actually, we'll go right now, it's about 3.4 million people being flooded every year. Instead of going up, it'll go down to about 15,000 people being flooded. Why? because we're richer and hence much, much more resilient. This blows the minds of most campaigners because Mm -hmm. obviously you think if sea levels are gonna rise, then clearly we're gonna be in more trouble. And that's true. We will be more trouble than if the sea levels hadn't risen. But as we also get much richer, we actually know how to deal with that. So we will reduce our level of vulnerability. By the end of the century, we will because of sea level rise, have about 15,000 people being flooded. This is one very, very quoted model. If we had had no climate impact, it would only have been 10,000. So, you know, climate really still does play an impact. It yeah. actually increases the number of people flooded by 50%. But it's a trivial number compared to what it is today. And of course, it's an absolutely trivial number compared to what scare stories tell us. So if you only tell one part of the story, if you only tell sea levels rise, nobody else does anything, the world is screwed. That makes sense, but that's not the correct story. That's not a politically informative story because that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where, because we're richer, we'll actually deal with many of these issues. And yes, we'll still have a residual problem of 15,000 people being flooded every year. That's still a problem. It's a much better world than one where 3.4 million people flood every year. And certainly much, much better than what we read in New York Times and Washington Post about 187 million people being flooded. But I understand why New York Times and Washington Post made that story, because it's much more fun to read. But so this is quite helpful because 
through your book, you keep saying climate change is bad. You insist that climate change is bad. Yes. And you've made this example here, like human-caused climate change will increase sea levels. But I came away from the book almost feeling like climate change isn't so bad because it's so hopeful of human ability to adapt. Yeah. And you insist on adaptation as a, an important thing for us to concentrate our energy on. But I wondered if we could just identify a couple of the, the bad things. I've also yes. noticed in your interviews, there's a lot of sort of explaining why the alarmism is wrong. But given that you insist that climate change is bad, yes. what are the, what are the yes. other problems yes. of climate change? So, And this is what's so hard when you try to think of the world from an economist's point of view. Fundamentally, what you see, and if we just take a look at temperature, as temperatures rise, you're going to get more heat waves, you're going to get more problems with heat, and you're going to get fewer problems with cold. If you look at two cities like Helsinki and Athens, they're both very well adapted to what their temperatures used to be. Mm -hmm. If we increase the temperature for both of them, which is what climate change does, or indeed if it had gone down, if you know, sort of global cooling kind of thing was happening, both of those things would be bad for both of those cities because they've invested an enormous amount of money and resources into buildings in Helsinki that are really warm in the winter and in Athens you know, that are really cool in the summer. If you change the temperature, it will change the optimization of both those cities. So both Helsinki and Athens will have to invest more in air conditioning and less in heating. That's going to cost them money. That's going to be troublesome. This is the basic problem of climate change. This is why all economists will tell you when you have an equilibrium of very, very large investments, typically of stock, so you know buildings and industry and that kind of thing, when the circumstances change, that will have a cost. It is not this huge cost that our climate campaigners would like us to believe, mm -hmm. but it's a cost nonetheless. So the economists will tend to tell you that by the end of the century, so this is work of Nordhaus, uh, William Nordhaus, the only climate economist to ever win the Nobel Prize in climate economics in 2018 from Yale University. And what he tells us is that if we do nothing about climate, by the end of the century, it will mean that we will be about 4% less well off than we otherwise would. Now, remember, a lot of the impacts on climate change are not actually going to be economic impacts. It's going to be the fact that some of our wetlands will suffer. You'll have to have more air conditioning in summer, heat waves, that kind of thing. But it will feel like and that's how economists do it, it'll feel like you're 4% less well off. Now, at the same time, the UN estimate that the average person on the planet, because we have seen sustained economic growth over the last 200 years, by the end of the century, the average person on the planet will be 450% as rich mm -hmm. as what he or she is today. So we'll be much richer. The 4% reduction means that essentially by the end of the century, if we do nothing about climate, instead of being 450% as rich, we will only be 434% as rich. Mm -hmm. And this explains, I think, your conundrum, because what it means is it's obviously a less good world where we're only 434% as rich compared to a world where we're 450%. And just remember, these are all model estimates. I mean, they're, they're not true numbers, but they're order of magnitude numbers. So it's obviously a less good world. But it's still a pretty damn good world where uh -huh. we're 434% as rich. And that goes to show you that climate change is a real problem. And that's mostly because it affects all of our stock decisions. So everything we've already built will be slightly out of optimum and that will have cost. But it's cost of you know the order of 4% in total compared to the fact that by the end of the century we'll be 450% or 434% as rich as we are now. That is why you come away with the sense of, but it's not that big a problem. Exactly. 
it is one of the many problems we need to fix, but it's not the end of all. And that's, of course, why this is not the meteor hurtling towards Earth. This is one of the many nagging issues that we'll have to fix in the 21st century. So climate policy is a trade-off then in how much climate change will affect GDP compared to how much it otherwise... This, uh, is, this, uh, this is essentially what Nordhaus got the Nobel Prize for. He said, and to any economist, it's sort of obvious, but it's not to a lot of other people. Uh -huh. Fundamentally, climate has costs. And that's what you hear constantly, and that's typically vastly exaggerated, right? So you hear about the sea level rise. You don't hear that it costs about $30 billion, which is probably the right answer, but you hear that it costs $55 trillion. So you, you get it, what, three orders of magnitude wrong. It's more than a thousand times bigger. That's why it makes big headlines. So you get the sense that this is the end of the world kind mm -hmm. of thing. But you also have to remember that climate policy has costs. So when you make climate policy, you, by design, make, for instance, energy more expensive because you have to switch to energy that you wouldn't otherwise have done, mm -hmm. uh, which is typically either more costly or a combination of less reliable or less available. So fundamentally, we're saying you have a cost, then you try to make a climate policy, which also has a cost. Yeah. Given that we have to pay both of these costs, we should make sure that we minimize the sum of these two. Mm -hmm. To an economist, that's an obvious way of saying we want to make the system such that everybody are best off in 2100. Mm -hmm. But to many people, there's a sense of the costs are incredibly exaggerated and there's virtually no cost to the policies. Actually, they'll make us better off. That's what a lot of people will tell you. While at the same time, of course, they also tell you, yeah, this is going to be incredibly hard and very, very costly. So we need to subsidize everyone in all these kinds of complicated ways. And it's going to be really hard to get most of the developing countries along with this and all these other things, which sort of gives away, yes, this is going to be fantastically costly. Just to give you one ballpark figure, the McKinsey estimate on net zero estimate that this is going to cost to get to net zero in the smart way will cost the world in the order of six trillion dollars per year for the next 30 years. And, you know, of course, that's $6 trillion. That's more than the entire education system, the entire world. It's a very, very large number of money. Do you think, so let's look at the policies then, and let's yes. start with net zero since you, you brought that up. Is, aside from how expensive it is, is it a policy that you completely throw out or is there anything about it which you value? <laughs> of course I value. I mean, look, CO2 is a problem. If you come up with a policy that says we're going to get rid of all CO2 emissions, mm -hmm. that's a good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, net zero is a policy that tries to do some good. Mm -hmm. In the UK, uh, given that UK is about, what, 1% of global emissions, you're basically saying we're going to try to cut global emissions by 1% by 2050. That's a good thing. Uh -huh. That's, you know, it's better that it's 99% than it's 100%. But... The point is, it is going to have a minuscule impact. Um, yeah. I, I can pretty well assure you that if you draw this with a pencil, the temperature line with, without the UK's policy and with the UK's policy, you can't tell the difference. You need to sharpen your pencil a lot before you can tell the difference between those two lines. Mm -hmm. So fundamentally, you're making a policy that will have virtually no impact on the yeah, global scale. Yeah. Now, if and this it will was, cost, it will cost if working this was people. cheap, then maybe we should do it. So the point is, it does do some good. But if it's going to be fantastically costly, and I think this is important to, to point out, not only will it mean that it's a really bad policy to do, that you're basically saying, let's spend lots and lots of resources to achieve a little tiny bit of good. That's a very bad deal. Mm. But also, if you try to do that, it is inevitable 
that you will get a revolution sooner or later, right? You will get people voting for Donald Trump or Bolsonaro or some people like that who say, why the hell, I don't know if we can say these words on, on your podcast. I just did, sorry. <laughs> uh, so you'll have to believe it. But anyway, why are we paying all this money instead of just taking it for ourselves? You well, we saw this in France with the Gilets Jaunes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'll basically get people to stop way before you're there. So one nature study showed in the Nature Journal that the cost of almost reaching Joe Biden's policy by 2050 is equivalent to costing each American every year by 2050 more than $11,000 per person per year. Mm. Remember, they'll be richer. It's not the end of the world. It's about, you know, what, 11% of their income. Uh -huh. So that's a lot of money, but it's not the end of the world. These Americans will still be okay off. But I defy you to believe that most people are still going to be voting for someone who says, you know what, I'm going to make you bleed $11,000 every year. They're just not going to do that. Yeah. And of course, this is rich world policies. Imagine asking, and that's one of the things I thought was amazing about the McKinsey study. They actually showed that for India, for instance, you'd have to spend about 10% of their GDP on net zero policy. That, that, that's mm. just implausible to imagine that up and coming, fairly poor, you know, still low middle income country, mm -hmm. that they are going to be willing to spend 10% of their GDP. Actually, spending on GDP, on net zero globally, would cost somewhere between half and two thirds of the entire global tax intake that we have from all nations in the world every year. Mm. That's just not implausible. That's mm. implausible. So you can say you want to do it, it's a bad idea, but it's also a bad idea in the sense that we know once you start implementing, people are just going to vote you out of all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can I ask then about the Paris Agreement? Because that's yes. also sort of the standard now that everyone refers to. And But you rile against it, and you're very critical. I, I hope I'm not riling, because that sound makes me sound unreasonable. I'm just simply saying it's <laughs> a bad idea. Riling. Yes, reasonable <laughs> riling. Yeah. You're very critical of the Paris Agreement, in that I think you say it will cost us a trillion dollars a year by 2030 yes. to, to implement with little gain. Yes. Actually, because we just talked about a much, much dumber policy, which is net zero. Uh, so in that yeah. context, Paris Agreement is only a semi-dumb policy. That's, that's why I probably also, uh, it's the one that we've actually decided to do. So yes, it's still dumb and we shouldn't do it. I estimate that whereas the benefit cost ratio for net zero is probably about one pence back on the, on the pound or mm -hmm. one cent back on the dollar, Paris Agreement might make us 10 cents back on the dollar, which is, you know, it's 10 times better, but it's still like you could just have given that dollar away and done the world 10 times more good. Mm -hmm. So it's still a dumb policy, but it's a less dumb policy. And again, we need to have this conversation, not because we are so focused on saying this is the end of the world, because if it is the end of the world again, then it doesn't make sense. You know, AOC was famously quoted back in 2018, where, where she said we only have 12 years left for the world, which makes sense if you read some of the documents, and especially how they were put out. But what she said, and I think that makes perfect sense, I totally understand her, she said, the world is ending, and you're asking how much will it cost to fix it? That makes perfect sense. If it is the end of the world, we should just spend everything. When you say it makes sense by what she read, yes. what, what do you mean? What, what so, did she so, read that made sense? So, that so she read the 12 years is, so in 2018, or actually a couple of years before that, we asked the, uh, so all world politicians asked the UN climate panel, the IPCC, to do a report on what would it take to get to 1.5 degrees centigrade. So limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. Right. This is going to be incredibly hard. I think most people sort of privately would accept 
this is just not possible. Well, but yeah, sorry. So what the report came out and said, all right, you've asked us, what will it take to do something that's almost impossible? And our answer is, it'll be almost impossible. It'll basically take that we have to change the entire world fundamentally before 2030. Uh -huh. And that was the 12 years. That's where right. that 12 years come from. So basically they say, if you ask us to do almost impossible stuff, you have to do almost impossible stuff to achieve it. Which is technically true, but you know that doesn't mean the world is ending in 12 years. But I think she gets, and I think a lot of people get, when you read the media, most people have other things to do than read the UN Climate Panel Report, and they actually have kids to pick up from school, that kind of thing. If you need to do that, your only reasonable estimate is that, yeah, this sounds like a terrible deal. This uh -huh. really sounds like the meteor hurtling towards yeah. Earth. And then, sure, spend all my money on, on avoiding that. That's not where we are, and that's why this is an important conversation. And that's based on the 1.5 degrees Celsius, which you say is an, in your book is an arbitrary number. Oh, it's it's an arbitrary number. I mean, you can tell from the fact that it doesn't have any more digits. It's just, you know, and even the two degrees target, which was a much more prevalent target, is also just an arbitrary target. It's something that people came up with. There's, there's one set of stories. It's very, very hard to sort of tell the starting point. Actually, there's some legitimacy to the fact that it started from one of Nordhaus papers the guy who won the Nobel Prize in Climate Economics, that it started back in the 1980s where he estimated what was the maximum temperature that some weeds could survive on a riverbed. And that research said that they could probably not handle more than about 0.2 degree temperature rise per decade, which turns into the two degree target. But it's that see. kind of level of thing, yeah, it's a, it's a thing you, you stick your finger in the air and say, you know, that sounds like a reasonable number. And of course, that's not how we should set policy targets for one of the most costly and potentially most impactful policies. But surely we should actually ask, what are the costs? What are the benefits? So can we go back then, seeing as on policy, that how you've come, let's say, to the rather potentially climate alarmist statement that the... Three million more deaths a year will happen if we take the green pathway rather than the fossil fuel pathway. So this is not something I'm going to go out on a limb to defend because that was not my main point in the book. Uh -huh. It was more a point of saying, so the UN has made a number of different uh, scenarios for what the world looks like, mm -hmm. which is necessary because we actually have to talk about how much CO2 do different civilizations emit in all the years out to 2100 in order to be able to run the models. So one of their models is the standard model. That was the one I was referring to, the SSP2, the middle of the road model, if you will, which is the one that gives 450% richer by the end of the century. Then there are two pretty bad scenarios. I'm not going to go into those. And then there are two good scenarios, if you will. One of them is the green scenario, which you would imagine that sounds like a really nice scenario. We actually get richer than in the middle of the road scenario. Uh, we live longer lives. We're better educated. Uh, crucially, of course, coming to the green, we emit a lot less CO2. It's a nicer, more beautiful world in all kinds of ways. That sounds like the one we would like, right? Mm -hmm. But there's another one that's called the fossil fuel intensive way which is basically we just go crazy on putting out lots and lots of fossil fuels. We just power the entire world with lots of power. Everybody gets lots of power. That doesn't sound very nice. And I think most people would sort of intuitively say, oh, ah, we shouldn't be doing that. However, it turns out, that we would be twice as rich by the end of the century. We would have lifted many more people out of poverty. That was one of the points uh -huh. that you made. We would have so many more resources that even though the climate change would obviously be a 
worse outcome because we'd be pumping out more CO2 in the atmosphere, we would be way better off. So mm -hmm. we would actually leave our descendants much, much better off by focusing on that fossil fuel path. Now, I'm not saying we should take that. I think that uh, this is too much of a scenario conversation, but I think it should get us to think about the fact that we constantly think about green as just being a good thing. But if it, there's a huge trade-off on pretty much everything else, you also want education, liberty of women, uh, getting people out of poverty, having the opportunity to do pretty much everything you will, being much more resilient, those kinds of things. Maybe we should at least think about the fact that green is not the only thing we want. That's the trade-off I wanted out with that quote. And so would the, the 26 million more extreme poor sort of be in that same category of, of the yeah. extreme? And look, we're in advanced civilization. We can walk into gum at the same time. We can actually both be somewhat green mm -hmm. and very rich. And I think that's what everyone would want to do that's why i'm i'm loath to just say you know the un mapped out five ways for the future you can only choose one of those five that's a little silly way of thinking about the world i just wanted to make sure that you understand that it's not just such that the green world sounds like really good because the dirty world if you will uh -huh. is actually much much better in their scenario but what we obviously should be aiming for is one where we're both incredibly rich where we really focus on lifting people out of poverty and making sure we have lots of productivity and become green and it's curious if you actually look at the evidence where are pollution problems they're not mostly in the rich world they're in the poor world as uh india gandhi one of the first prime ministers of india she said the real uh, source of pollution is poverty you know if you're poor you cut down rainforest. You'll do anything to make your kids survive, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're rich, you actually care about the environment because you can afford to, because you no longer have to worry about where your next meal comes from. So you're focusing, if we lift the poor out of poverty, that is the, the correct way to, to direct well, it's, it's one of the ways. Look, there's many different objectives in the world. I'm sorry, I, I can't just, sure. I can see in your face you would like me to just say yes or no. Uh, no, no, but, no, no. But, but fundamentally, it's one of the many things that we need to do. We should lift people out of poverty. I think it's unconscionable right now that we're basically telling the poor world, look, we got rich on fossil fuels. It was great for us. But, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sorry, there's not space for you. So you just got to stay poor and get used to it. That just doesn't work. And of course, they're not going to accept that either. But I think that's unconscionable in any kind of way. But likewise, we obviously also need to fix a lot of environmental problems. You know, there's lots of air pollution around the world. You go to India, you know, they clearly need to clean up. A lot of that will come as they get richer, but we can also help with more technology. And of course, we also need to fix climate change. Mm -hmm. But one of the truths that we forget when we're so worried about climate because we hear all these scary messages is what solves most problems is not making people scared. And it's not selling people you have to do without because that never works. What works is you have technological innovation. Mm -hmm. Let me just tell you a story yeah, that sounds yeah. like it's totally irrelevant. But back in 1860s, the world caught almost all the whales it gets its hands on. And we were basically getting close to being able to wipe out the whales. Why? Because they produce this oil that burns incredibly cleanly and very brightly. So it basically lit up most of Western Europe and North America. Everybody loved it. Now, if you were sort of a standard climate person trying to get people to stop killing all the whales, you'd be saying, stop doing that. You got to go back to that dirty old, less luminous, but much more polluting uh, fuel to light your houses. And people would say, ha, not going to do that. What actually did work 
was we discovered oil. Mm. And oil happens to be a lot easier to get out of the ground than actually going out in the ocean surface to kill a whale and just get a little bit of blubber. So it was a much better, much more effective way. And suddenly everybody just switched to oil and we basically saved the whales. It's not the only thing and there's a lot of other nuances to the story. But the fundamental point here is if you have innovation, you can get good stuff without having to tell people you have to do with less. And I think that's what we're struggling with right now with climate conversation. It's become about this, you've got to eat less, you've got to travel less, you've got to uh, you know, be a little colder, a little poorer, it's going to be a little more uncomfortable, but at least we'll save the planet. Most people are just not going to say yes to that, and certainly not in Africa and India and elsewhere. What we will solve the climate crisis with, or I'm not going to say climate crisis, the climate problem is by focusing on innovation. Yeah. Imagine if we could innovate, say, fourth generation nuclear to be cheaper than fossil fuels. Yeah, Everyone would switch. You wouldn't have to have all these grand meetings in Paris and everywhere else. You'd just simply see nations across the world switching. So on that, that's a question of levelized energy cost and in yes. innovation combined. But I'd have thought, so if you take the issue as a, if you just focus on energy, where we get our energy from, and Correct me if, if I get any of this wrong, because relatively new to this, but that's where the source of greenhouse gases is coming from. I'd have thought that innovation in wind and solar would be a sensible way forward. Now, I understand that the problem we've got is storage. We can't store it, but we need innovation in storage. But in your book, and by the way, this ties in with your example of the whales, like we, we found a better fuel, so we moved off naturally. Now, if wind and solar is way cheaper and it's infinitely better for the environment than yep. the other energy options we have. And yet you write in your book, rolling out solar panels and wind turbines have insidious effects. They push up energy costs, hurt the poor, cut emissions ineffectually, and put unsustainable pathways where taxpayers are eventually likely to revolt. So why are you against solar and, and wind? Yep. Isn't that the new version of, of moving from the whale to It, to, it could to definitely oil? be. So I'm not against that solar and wind could be a solution in the long run. But right now, they're only a tiny bit of a solution. So there's actually something, you know, let me just start with a positive. If you look, for instance, in California, where the peak electricity use is in the daytime, mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense to have solar panels mm -hmm. because that can actually cut the peak level. Solar panels, not surprisingly, peak at the middle of the day, and typically they peak because of air conditioning use, so they'll only peak when you need it, when the sun is out. Mm -hmm. So it actually fits perfectly. You should have solar panels for that. But the point is that most people seem to believe that we should somehow blanket the world with solar power or wind turbines, and that will provide us energy. And there, the problem is, no, that's going to be fantastically costly, and you need almost the entire stock of fossil fuel options as backup, because right now we don't have batteries, and we have no sense of how we could have enough batteries to actually have storage enough. So right now, the world has battery storage for about one minute and 15 seconds. Uh, so when the sun shuts down and the wind uh, stops blowing, you have enough battery power to keep the world running for one minute and 15 seconds. And after that, you're back to fossil fuels. Uh, by 2030, it'll be up to 11 minutes. That's still way uh, less yeah. than what you need. So in Germany, every year they have so little sun and no wind for at least five days or the equivalent of about 7,000 minutes. So we're far, far away. So my point is... But that's yes, battery, right? So yes. what, what about... Hydrogen or water storage, are, so, yeah. are those not better options? So water storage is a good idea, and we actually have a lot of it, but it's really hard to imagine 
that you can have it many more places than you already have because it's very, very uh, feature dependent. So basically it requires you to live in a place where close by you have lots and lots of mountains where you can pump up water that can stay there. Right. So it has to be a, a reservoir. Some places you can do it. That's a really cheap way of storing and you should definitely do it. We've done most of that. Uh, the hydrogen turns out to be very inefficient, pretty dangerous. It could be a solution. So again, I'm arguing, and if you've seen in the book, I definitely say, Spend more money on getting better wind turbines. Spend more money on innovation, on getting better solar panels. Absolutely spend a lot of different ways to get better storage. But it doesn't seem like at the current rate that this is what's going to save most of the issue. So mm -hmm. it's at best one of those things where we should also be focusing and we'll solve a little bit of the problem through that. But in the current conversation on climate, it's almost become the savior of everything. We should just have much more solar, much more wind. And people routinely talk about the fact that, yeah, then we'll have, you know, like six times as much wind and three times as much solar. And then we will do hydrogen as backup and stuff like that. That's all fine. But then, of course, you can't claim that the one time is efficient because the next five times are incredibly ineffective. Right. So you need to do the math again. And we don't. We just sort of proceed on, on, a, on a prayer and a, on a hope. And wasting a lot of money. And, and Yes. So amongst your solutions for climate change, some of which we've already discussed, like innovation and adaptation, but carbon tax, you believe in carbon tax. Yeah. But wouldn't carbon tax, like the other policies we've discussed being problematic policies, wouldn't that also hurt the poor? Wouldn't it be the poor who end up paying more for energy? They're already paying a high percentage of their income on energy. Carbon tax is just going to mean that that goes up. Yes. How can you support carbon tax but be against these other... So, uh, so it's, it's important to say when you talk to an economist, you'll typically just hear about efficiency. Uh, equity, so the distribution, is a different issue. Now, clearly, if you actually do a carbon tax... So the point I make with the carbon tax is, as I think all climate economists and pretty much all economists would argue is to say that's the right way to fix the problem. Now, there's two main issues with it. One is it's very hard to convince politicians it's a good idea because they, they'll likely yeah. get bumped out of, of office by trying to do this. And secondly, if you do a carbon tax, you also have to scrap all the subsidies that you have for everything else, right? You can't both have a tax and all these subsidies. That's an incredibly ineffective way, but that's unfortunately very often how you end up. Now, if you do the carbon tax right, you get a lot of extra revenue. That's sort of in line with how we think generally about you need some revenue to run a state. And there's ineffective ways of doing that. That's, for instance, income tax, VAT, lots of other ways that are fairly destructive or distortive in the economy. And it turns out that a carbon tax is one of the least distortive taxes. So you could fund more of the state with a carbon tax, and that means you could give back either by lowering the income tax or perhaps just give money back directly to poor people. That's the check idea that a lot of people have mm. that you actually send out to poor people. So there's a lot of ways you can address this. I think it is also important to say that a lot of people who are skeptical about a tax, and I get that point, is that have we ever actually seen politicians say, you know what? We got too much tax in. We're going to lower some of the other taxes. So there's a real worry that it's just going to lead to higher taxes, which, of course, just means more distortion instead of less. So, you know, it's a, in theory, correct solution. I think we should definitely consider it. But we also need to know all the things that it entails. So I want to ask a question that I hear a lot from the people purporting that the end of the world is coming. And it's, <laughs> it's this yes. sort of anti-natalist attitude that the world cannot hold 
as many people as we currently hold and we certainly can't grow. Do you agree with this or does the earth have a higher capacity for human population than, than yeah. we're currently at? So it's a very, very large question. I don't think I'm going to give you a satisfying answer to this. The short point is, of course, more people means more CO2 emissions. So they have a point in saying that maybe if we were fewer people, that would be better for the planet in the sense that we would have less carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. But it's a very, very specific and very narrow way of looking at the issue because obviously if we have more people on the planet, we also have more geniuses. We'll have more people that'll discover the cure for cancer and we'll have more Mozarts and all this other stuff. More idiots. Uh, sorry? More idiots too. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Fundamentally, we are failing to capture all the benefits of having people. Now, most people make very clear choices where they choose to live. Most people don't actually live where there are few people. You know, mm -hmm. There's lots of countryside where you can go out mm -hmm. and live pretty well. Most people actually pay exorbitant rents to be able to live in you know, downtown New York, where you have a crappy little apartment at a huge cost, but because it's so much fun to live together with other people. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, it seems like we're actually voting when you ask people, with our feet to mostly live where everybody else lives. So we actually like to congregate. Mm -hmm. I think these are much, much grander conversations than we can reasonably have. It's also important to say that it sort of touches some of the basic human freedoms. You know, to yeah. many people, having a child or having more children is one of the most meaningful things yeah. they can do with their lives. And I think it's a terrible idea to go in and say, you shouldn't do that. On the other hand, we should also recognize that if you have lots and lots of kids and you don't have much productive capacity, maybe it leaves you in a worse place. Uh, so I'm much more agnostic to this kind of conversation. I sure. think you need to make sure that people have the opportunity to have contraception, for instance. We know a lot of women that actually get more kids than they want, especially in the developing world and getting, especially women, more education and more business opportunities also means that they're going to decide to have many fewer kids because they're going to say, I would like to actually make my own career and I'd like to have my own job and do my own impact on, on the world in many other ways. And that probably is a good thing overall. So the, yeah. the short answer is just to look at this as a climate solution is a terrible way to look at it because basically you end up telling people, you know what, you would probably get the most meaning out of having a kid, but no. Yeah. And that's just terrible. Look, what we should do is innovation to make sure that we fix climate change. And then the question of how many people should we be is a separate problem. Mm -hmm. There's also always that thing when you talk to people who are advocating we're too many people. It's often too many of you, but just enough of me. Yeah, yeah. And that obviously comes across as a little hypocritical. I, you know, I, there's a lot of these people who will tell you there's too many people on the planet, but they certainly don't have problem with their own kids. I think we're on really sketchy uh, sort of moral, moral territory moral, yeah. here. And it's tied and it potentially too big a topic for now, but I mentioned this in the introduction, is that the UNHCR say there are 20 million displaced people a year because of climate and extreme weather. And it is a fact or a statement that is often cited by environmental alarmists. And what's your take on that? Do you think so the, the, it's the a reasonable uh, the position? The problem with environmental refugees and climate refugees is that it's almost all rubber band. You can choose to define any of these in any kind of ways. So what they cleverly do is say it's climate and weather-related refugees. And of course, weather does push a lot of people away from where they usually would live. If we look at the recent floods in Pakistan that a lot of people have been sort of blaming on climate, that has some reasonability. 
There is some truth to the fact that we would expect in a warmer climate that you would have more precipitation and therefore also have more risk of flooding. But of course, the real point is that Pakistan for what, 20, 30, 40 years have ignored to make their infrastructure better for water, get more water features that you actually safeguard your main economic centers, that you make sure people don't build and especially live on places that will get flooded. These are basic things. And so in our effort to focus on a climate solution, which just remember, even if we actually did all of what we promised with net zero, would mean that Pakistan would be slightly less more inundated by the end of the century. That's a terribly low bar to try to help Pakistan with. Instead of saying, well, why don't we actually try to focus on getting them politically better able to deal with these issues so they need to invest more in their water infrastructure, they need to have more boundaries where people can't settle, and of course, we need to get them out of poverty. Because if you're not in poverty, you actually fix most of these problems as Holland has shown you. Mm -hmm. So the point here is to say, in some ways, I get that many of these environmental activists come from a good place. They want to help the world, but they're unfortunately advocating possibly the least effective way to help. So they're saying, let's do the thing that'll cost them more money, that'll make most people unhappy and unlikely to happen. But even if it did, it'll actually help terribly, terribly little. Instead of, and that's what my think tank then does, there's a lot of simple things where we could actually have huge impact at very low cost. Why don't we do those first? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so last thing I want to ask you about is something you've been writing about recently. I believe you're working on this with your think tank, which is the UN's SDG, Sustainable Development Goals. And you have identified various problems with the, the program and the goals. And I was wondering if you could explain what an SDG is exactly, and, yes. and what's wrong, and what's going wrong with yes. the with yes. the. So it's it's sort of a neat follow on from our whole conversation on climate because what my think tank does, and I think what we all should be doing in all kinds of walks of life, is simply to say everything you choose has a cost and a benefit. Why don't we do the things that cost little and have huge benefits first? You know, so it's not rocket science. We do this in our own lives all the time. Why don't we do this in our political lives as well? Why don't we do this as nations? Well, a lot of it is because there's a lot of campaigning going on for some things. So, you know, we worry a lot about plastics in the ocean, which I think is a nice th thing to worry about. But, you know, come on. Shouldn't we worry more about the fact that diesel cars pollute the atmosphere for my kids to die right now? I mean, it seems like that would be a slightly bigger issue. Uh -huh. But it's not because the plastic in the ocean feels like a much bigger thing. So what we try to do is basically say, where can you get the most value for your money? What is the smartest policies to do? The SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, is the UN. So it's really all countries, the UK, the US, everybody has signed up to this except for Syria and one other country I can't remember. So you know, fundamentally, everyone in the world has signed up to this. It's a promise to do a lot of good things by 2030. So we promised fundamentally to do all good things. So we promised to eradicate war, eradicate disease, eradicate hunger, uh, get rid of global warming, get everybody educated well, and all the other things you can think of, down to get more recycling and have more parks for handicapped people in bigger cities and the whole shebang, right? So we basically promised everything. We already said back then, you know, when we promised that you can't just promise everything. If you promise everything, it's like having no priorities and you're not going to make any of it. We're not half time for this process and we're nowhere near halfway our promises, mm -hmm. which is not surprising. So what we're saying is, look, if you can't do it all, 
Shouldn't we do the smartest things first? So we try to identify, just like in climate, what are the smartest policies? So climate, the smartest policy by far is to invest in innovation. If you can come up with great new innovations that will make clean, available, green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone will switch. So that's the solution for climate. That's a pretty good investment. It's not a fantastic investment, but it's pretty good. But if you look at some of the things you could do for the world, and let me just give you a few tastes. So we have like 12 amazing policies the world should be focused on. Tuberculosis. So we worried a lot about COVID these last two years, but in 2022, tuberculosis was back again as the world's leading infectious disease killer. Wow. And over the last 200 years, it's killed a billion people on the planet. You know, most people you remember from the 1800s died from tuberculosis. This has been a huge killer of mankind for centuries. And we cared a lot about it in the 1800s because it killed us. Then we figured out how to fix it for us. And now we don't care. It kills 1.4, 1.5 million people every year. We know how to fix it. Mm-hmm. We could do so very cheaply. So we find that for about $5 billion a year, a trivial part of what it would cost to do net zero or anything else that we're talking about in climate, you could actually save a million lives every year right now. Why aren't we doing that? So our point is simply to say, if you did that, for every pound spent, you would do the equivalent of 48 pounds of social good for the world. That's a tremendous bang for your buck, as the Americans would say, or uh, you know, value back on your pound. So the idea here is simply to say there are some fantastic things that we can do right now that would have huge impact. Take, for instance, nutrition. There is way too many people who are still starving. Most of it is not because we don't have enough food, but it's because a lot of people are still poor. But one way we could make sure that more people would have access to food is to get better food productivity. That's what the Green Revolution did back in the 1960s and 70s. Back then, we worried a lot about the whole sort of developing world. We worried a lot about India just being a basket case and would never, you know, too many people and too little food kind of thing. And then along came Norman Bolark, who is criminally unknown. He got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. He basically worked with a lot of researchers to make yields higher. They did so by making dwarf varieties of rice and wheat. And so they use less energy on the stem. They just get smaller, Uh but then they can support more of the grain. It's a simple thing, Mm. but that basically saved a billion people's lives. I mean, imagine having that on your CV. That's pretty good, right? (laughs) We should do that again. Yeah. And that's fairly cheap. So let's invest about, again, $5 billion a year in more research and development into yield enhancements. So that would be both on wheat and maize and rice, but also, of course, on all these varieties that are big in developing countries. If we could do that and get that in the hands of developing country farmers, they would be much more productive. Prices would fall, so everyone would gain, and we would be better fed. Again, if you spend a dollar there you do $35 worth of good. Mm. We're simply saying this is fantastic return for the world. So we're coming out with these 12 simple policies that could make the world an amazingly much better place. Yes, it's not gonna suddenly solve everything and it's not also gonna solve climate change, but the point is this would actually be something we know works and for very little money, could make an amazing achievement. So that's what I'm trying to push. Is we, the Copenhagen consensus think tank? Yes, but with lots of researchers that we work with more than 100 top economists and several Nobel laureates and a lot of organizations obviously on board in this. So we have some great advisors and we're really trying to take this into a global setting. So this is period research, getting everybody to know about it. And then again, telling everyone 
all the finance ministers, all the prime ministers to say, if you focus, for instance, on tuberculosis or more investment in agricultural R&D, you could have tremendous payback. You could make your country so much better for very little money. Uh-huh. Wouldn't that be a good idea? And that is my theory of change is when we give policymakers these 12 great ideas, they're not going to do all of them, but they're going to pay, oh, I like this one. And then they're going to do something that's really great for humanity. Are you already in conversation with policymakers? Oh, God, yes, yes. So, for instance, on education, it's you know one of the big problems in the world. We don't have good education, especially in the developing world. So about 80% of all that go to developing country schools don't learn what is even considered minimal information, right? So if you ask them a question like this, Vijay has a red hat, a blue shirt and yellow socks. What color is the hat? 80% of these kids can't answer that question. And you're sort of like, oh my God, right? This is really terrible. The problem is that when you put a lot of 12 year olds in the same grade, Some of these 12-year-olds have no clue what's going on, and some Mm. of them are far bored because they're way ahead of the teacher. How are you going to teach a class like that? Mm. The point here is, and there's lots of research that shows this, if you teach each individual according to his or her own level, you mm. can teach them much, much more. Now, that's really hard to do in a physical sort of way because then you need to put six-year-olds and 12-year-olds together because they're at the same level. You can do that in some places and then you do, you do do that, but that's hard. But you can also do it with a tablet. So if you put this kid one hour a day in front of a tablet with you know this teaching program in their own language, this tablet will know from previous days what level are you at mm. and teach you at your exact level. And what's amazing about this is, so it'll cost about $25 per kid per year extra because you need to buy the tablets. We're not giving it to them. They're sharing it with many others, right? But you need to have a place you lock it in. You need to have a solar panel to charge them, all that stuff. $25, but you will teach them so much that after one year of school, they will have learned as much as what they would normally have learned of three years of school. You're simply making them much better educated. Mm -hmm. And we're actually working with the Malawi government to extend this to all their primary schools now. So a couple of million kids. There's a lot of great ideas out there. And my point is simply to say, why are we so obsessed with the not very effective ideas when there's so many incredibly effective ideas out there? Now, again, this is not going to solve everything for everyone. Of course, it's good that there are people who are worried about plastic in the oceans and all these other things. But we need, as a civilization, to keep asking that question. Look, all of this you're proposing is going to cost money. Where can I spend the extra pound or the extra dollar, the extra shilling, and do the most good? Mm. And I would love for us to do a little more of that. Great. Well, on that note, Bjorn Lomborg, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. And I'm sure people have found that fascinating. And if they want, I recommend they read your book, False Alarm. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. It was great. 